0: Hey, guys. We are ready to do this? Yes? Grab your Bibles. Let's open up the book of Philemon. You're like, where is Philemon? It is a tiny little book. Um, if you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 1000. That'll help you out. Um, if you flip through and you see the bigger book of Hebrews, it's right before it. Um, But Let me welcome you. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, we're really thankful that you guys chose to share the morning with us and hope it is a blessing to you. We're going to spend the next three weeks in this letter. It is one of the shortest letters in the New Testament. Um, Most people honestly don't even know it's there. Uh, It is tiny, but it is a hidden gem filled with really a lot of um, very relevant um, insight into how to navigate uh, difficult Tricky, messy, jacked-up relationships, okay? This is a, a letter that really just unpacks some some powerful principles. Now, um, for us to understand um, what's going on in this letter, we need to practice a form of interpretation called mirroring. Um, and very simply, what that means is this is the only letter we have giving us an insight into uh, this this situation would be as if you had a chat conversation with someone and somehow digitally everything they said was automatically erased and all we had left was your side of the chat. We would have to study your words and and, and your jokes and your comments and um, you're describing your food and, and all the things that you're doing to try to figure out who you're talking to and why you're talking to them, and why it's even important, right? We have one side of the conversation. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read this letter with the purpose of actually kind of getting insight into um, what's going on in this situation. And and so um, we're going to read this together. Now, I'm going to warn you, today's sermon is going to be a little bit more teachy than preachy. Uh, We're going to be laying some groundwork um, today that will help us carry us through for the next couple of weeks, because we really need to get the context of this letter to understand the content. And uh, and so we're going to spend some time unpacking that this morning. All right, let's read this together. Philemon, starting in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus... for, uh, also, for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you, and he was useless to you, but now he's useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a brother, especially to me and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow soldier, our prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends greeting to you. And so do Mark and Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. All right, what in the world is going on here? Um, here's the thing. When Jesus died and rose again, it was um, an act of, of incredible personal meaning for each individual who would believe in Him, but also an act of uh, cosmic recreation, right? When Jesus died and rose again, it was, it was very personal to me because He took my sin. He died in my place. He rose again for my forgiveness. And when I believe in Christ, I am cleansed and I am forgiven and I am made new. And that is incredibly good news. But, but when Christ died and rose again, He also inaugurated a new kingdom, he started a new story for humanity, a story of victory and triumph instead of failure and, and, and defeat, a story in which God would be the center and God would get his glory instead of man um, ultimately walking away from God and being left in um, the brokenness of, of um, his sin. So what we see in this letter, and this is what we're going to unpack this morning, is this. We see this cosmic story, this, this incredibly big picture story of God recreating the human story of ultimately the kingdom of God breaking in and, and offering mankind a, a second chance, in a sense, to be what they were created to be. But, but that cosmic story playing out on a very small stage, right? It, it, is, it is a globally um, uh, affecting work that actually has very, very personal and, and very, very intimate implications. And so we see here a very personal, intimate story, Um, And and what we're seeing is is the gospel, this big picture breaking into this very small place. Now, for us to understand it, I think what we're going to do is begin by taking a look at the characters in the story, right? We need to see who the relationships are in this mess for us to understand how grace is going to play its way out. Well, the first person we're introduced to, obviously, is Paul. Paul is the one who wrote the letter. The Apostle Paul is very well known in the New Testament. Um, and, and he generally introduces himself by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's his way of leading out and saying, um, I have authority to write to you on these issues because um, Jesus himself has placed the mantle of authority on me. It's not a power play on his part. It is um, really a, a statement that, that he has been entrusted with a sacred trust, the gospel, and it is his job to carry it forward um, to to start new churches and, and see those churches grounded and growing in the gospel. But he doesn't begin the letter that way. He doesn't say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. It is a minor but interesting distinction. Paul doesn't do that very often. Paul doesn't lead out in this way very often, and, and, and it is significant. We're going we're to take a look at that a little bit later. But what I want you to notice at this point is that he's not coming to this conversation wearing his official mantle of authority. He's not coming to this conversation in full garb, powering up, um, I am an apostle and, and I'm stepping in with authority. He is stepping in in the garb of humility. He's stepping in as a fellow recipient of grace, as somebody who is weak and presently um, in prison. Now, this also tells us that he is in prison, uh, which helps us date the letter. He's in prison in Rome, uh, which means that this letter was written around 60, 61 A.D., um, and and that would have made Paul around 50 or 60 years old, uh, depending on when he was born. It is toward the end of his life. And, um, and he is under house arrest in Rome. So he is, he is um, chained to a Roman uh, guard, um, and he is dependent on people to bring him supplies, to, to get him the things he needs. He is in a place of, of limited mobility and great dependence, okay? And so he has a group of people around him that are part of his, um, we'll call it the church planting team. These are his co-workers, his, his co-soldiers, if you want to put it that way, um, and and they are caring for him um, during this period of time. Now, the letter is written to Philemon. Philemon is the first person addressed, right? To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. The way ancient letters were written, that would make Philemon the primary recipient. Now, you think about the way you write letters today. If it's formal, you say, dear so-and-so, Right. Um, if it's informal, you're like, hey, Joe, right? But you always identify right up front who you're writing to, and then you put your name at the very end after your little whatever your personal signature line is, best regards or, or be cool or, or whatever it is, right? Whatever your, whatever your line is, right? In, in the ancient world, um, the way they wrote letters was a little bit differently. They would begin by saying who they were, right? Paul, I'm the one writing. And then they would begin by saying the first person listed was the person they were primarily addressing. So Philemon is the primary recipient of this letter. He is a believer who hosted the gathering of the church in his home, uh, which means that he was a wealthy landowner with a home large enough to host a group. Now, during this period of time, um, the church, the people of God, didn't meet in buildings called churches. Right? This was way too early for that development, um, and socially it wouldn't, just wouldn't have flown. It wasn't possible. So what happened is, in a city, as people became believers, they would simply meet from home to home, and pretty naturally, eventually, um, they would meet in the largest home. Right? And so he had a home that was, their homes would have been a compound in a sense, a series of buildings or a series of homes, usually behind a wall. Um, and there would be a series of courtyards and larger rooms. And so he had a home that was large enough that he could host the local gathering of the church, like this, right? So instead of renting an old bank space, um, they would meet in, in Philemon's home. And, uh, and so the church would gather there. And, uh, and that means that tells us a lot about him, right? It tells us that he was generous, that he was generous with his time and his resources and his finances because he would uh, generally feed folks and, and, and take them in. And, um, and it's clear um, from the letter that, that Philemon is actually friends with Paul. Um, you can tell by the tone of the letter. It's actually quite intimate and very personal in its language, right? Paul's not writing to somebody he's never met. He's writing to somebody he knows. And so his praise is very specific and very personal. His requests are are, um, clearly to somebody that he knows. And he calls him specifically a fellow worker, which means that he identifies Philemon as somebody of some spiritual uh, maturity, potentially he was an elder or a pastor in that local church. Now we tend to think of, well, who's the pastor of the church? Um, We get kind of hung up on that language. In the New Testament, the words elders and pastor are interchangeable. Um, And so the local churches were led by a group of elder pastors. Um, And and this would have been a group of people that that were qualified spiritually uh, and recognized by the bodies being called by the Spirit to lead in that local context. So a pastor literally means shepherd, right? It's somebody who knows and cares for and feeds and guards the flock, the the church. And so it's possible that Philemon was um, functioning in that capacity. Um, If he wasn't, he was clearly one of the leaders as far as um, serving. He probably became a believer in Ephesus, during one of Paul's um, earlier missionary journeys. It probably would have been about five years earlier, simply because of the proximity of Colossae. We know he's there because of a later part, uh, and Ephesus. Um, and so it's a young church. It's a growing church. They're discovering what it means to be followers of Jesus. Now, there are two people mentioned with Philemon that are important, Apphia and Archippus. Apphia, we don't know a whole lot about her, She's not mentioned anywhere else. Um, Paul identifies her as Apphia, our sister, which means, of course, she's a believer. She's in the family of faith. But based on the placement um, and the way ancient letters were structured, uh, it is generally assumed that Apphia was Philemon's wife, that, that it's actually written to the husband and wife, the, the people that are hosting the church in their home, right? And Archippus then would have been their son. Uh, Archippus... Um, is somebody that is known outside of this little letter. Um, in the letter to Colossians, he is specifically mentioned as one of the leaders in the church, which is why we believe that, that um, Philemon's home was in Colossae, that he was one of the churches meeting in the city, um, one of the homes that was uh, as a home base for the gathering. And, uh, and Archippus is actually called a, uh, a fellow soldier in the faith, which meant that Archippus was part of Paul's church planting team right? He was part of that team of guys that would come in and help start and strengthen churches. He was one of those guys that had committed his life to being on Paul's team. Um, and, and, and I don't mean that, of, of course, competitively, but, but Paul was out there, um, you know, generating a lot of activity and a lot of energy and starting a lot of things. And he needed a lot of people around him to come behind him and help organize and care and, and do all of those things. And, and Archippus would have been part of that structure. The final group that's mentioned is the church in your house, now, this tells us that this is not just a personal letter, right? I'm sure Paul wrote personal letters, um, just, hey, checking on you, <laughs> miss you, that sort of stuff. Um, but when he tells us, this letter is also to the church in your house, that, that is a clue to us that it was intended to be read to the entire group. This was not just a personal letter between Paul and Philemon and his family. It was, in fact, a, a, in a sense, an official letter to the church gathering in that home. Now, it wasn't meant to be a circular letter. So it wasn't meant to be circulated among all the churches of Colosse. Um, those churches are pretty. Obvious. Those those letters are obvious. Like the, the to the church in Colossae. What that meant was that that letter was meant to be circulated to all the individual gatherings in that city. Okay, um, here it is specifically to this home and to the people who meet in this home because what really is needed here is a family gathering. There's an issue that has come up that that is central to the family gathering, to this group who meets in this place. So what does this family gathering signify? What is so urgent? And that's the next guy, um, Onesimus. Onesimus is at the heart of the trouble. There are a couple important things we can glean from this letter about Onesimus, right? Take a look at verse 16. Um, "'No longer is he a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother.'" All right. Onesimus was Philemon's slave. And we get from reading the letter that he escaped, that he ran away. Okay. Uh, So what we're dealing with is an escaped slave ultimately being sent back to his master. All right, we have to talk a minute about slavery. I know, right? As soon as that word comes up, everyone's like, what? Slavery? Um, And we automatically will side with the slave, right? I mean, we're like, like, yeah, he should be emancipated. He should totally be free, right? He stole from his master. Good, right? Good. I hope he insulted him. Good on the way out. We need to understand a little bit about the context of slavery during this period of time if we're really going to understand the nuances of this letter. And the first thing we need to realize is that slavery during this period of time was of a different category than the slavery we think of, right? When we think of slavery, we think of America's history with slavery, which was um, racially driven, right? It was predatory. People were actually kidnapped from their homes um, and, and plucked away purely because of their racial background and, and um, the arrogance of the racial superiority. Um, they were dehumanized, completely robbed of all human rights, um, and, and the history is pretty brutal, right? And so when we think of slavery, that's the lens we approach it through. I'm not going to defend slavery, all right? Slavery in all of its forms is dehumanizing and ultimately should be eradicated right? But slavery in the ancient world was of a different character than the American version. And honestly, not as vile. Uh, I'm just going to be on the, on the whole. Uh, first of all, it wasn't racially based, okay? It was, it was economically and politically structured, not good, but still true, okay so that doesn 't mean that people were plucked out of their homes purely based on their racial background um, they, were, they were politically um, if you were a nation state at war with another nation state and you lost, it was uh, fairly common for you to be taken to the victor 's homeland and made a slave. It was part of the acculturation process. When you lost the war, what they were saying basically is you've lost your cultural heritage. You're now going to be brought in and made part of our culture. And so what ended up happening is, is as those people became enculturated, they wouldn't be generations upon generations of slaves. They would actually be integrated into the culture and into society. Okay? Um, the other way people became slaves is through economy. Okay, they didn't have this, um, this magic reset button that we have today called bankruptcy, Burp, you know, and, and anybody who's been through it, I'm not saying it's a wonderful thing or that it's easy, right? Um, but it is a way to basically say, okay, I have to reset my financial state, right? I'm going to hit bankruptcy. They didn't have that. So if you got into a financial mess um, in the ancient world, your life was still on the line. There was no reset button, and so a lot of these people became indentured servants, and what that meant was they owed a debt they couldn't pay, and so what ended up happening is for a specific amount of time to a specific person, they became indentured servants. They became slaves, and so after eight years or seven years or whatever, they decided was the equivalent uh, of actually paying off the debt this person would serve for that period of time and then be freed. Again, it was not generational. It wasn't because you're the son of a slave, you're automatically a slave sort of a deal, and so people... Came into slavery through different avenues, and they were ultimately treated differently than um, than our version. Um slavery was incredibly ingrained in the ancient world. There was, there was literally, as far as I know, no society that didn't have some form of slavery. It was culturally assumed. Um, for people during this period of time to think of a world without slavery would have been really impossible. Um, slavery became uh, a way of, of building a social and economic fabric. In fact, slaves owned slaves, and, and, and it was um, part of the, the network. Um, there were people that chose slavery, Because it was the best economic, like it was having, basically it's like having a job, but you can't change uh, your job, right? It's like saying, okay, I want this job, but I'm signing on for life right? It's a permanent contract. And so they would actually become what was called bond servants. These people were were willingly entering into slavery, and they actually had a ritual for doing that, right? You'd go, and they would nail your your earlobe to the post of the door, and it was basically a symbolic way of saying, I attach myself, covenant-wise, to this home, right? Um, And and so people would um, enter into lifelong indentured servitude because it was basically a job. It was their security, Um, They were paid a living wage. They were given um, uh, all the human dignities and freedoms uh, necessary outside of work. Um, They were basically provided a place to have a living. And so this was um, uh, a definitely widespread and part of the broader culture. Now, there were aspects of it that are way more brutal. If you had a master that just was a jerk, um, they had a lot of free reign. To, to be jerks and be evil. Uh, if you were unlucky enough to end up in the salt mines, that was miserable, right? There were certain jobs that, that were horrible, horrible jobs um, to be forced into. Um, and, uh, and for the most part, um, the entire thing is dehumanizing, the idea of one human owning another. Um, is completely incompatible with my view of how the human condition is supposed to be. There are critics that will say, because the Bible doesn't overtly condemn slavery, it's actually endorsing it. And there are critics that will say, well, see right here, the Bible endorses slavery. And I would say this, the reality is, even though Paul gives advice about how to operate within that structure, doesn't mean he condones that structure right? Just because he tells slave owners how to be godly slave owners and slaves how to be godly slaves doesn't mean he actually condones the structure that he's giving people advice on how to operate in, right? We find that throughout the New Testament. There there will be lots of times Paul's basically saying, okay, here are the biblical principles to unpack in this situation. It doesn't mean he, he endorses everything going on in that situation. It just means that's where you are, and here are the principles that will help you navigate it to the glory of God. So Onesimus was a slave. We don't know how he got there, but from the letter, uh, I think my best guess is that it was an economic purpose, that that he actually owed Philemon money. Um, And we don't know why. We don't know how. None of that backstory is given. But obviously Onesimus um, resented his slavery and wanted to be free. Um, and, and so what ends up happening, I think, is he actually, and we're guessing from, the, from this, but, but it's a pretty good clue. I think he stole from Philemon in order to fund his freedom, right? If you take a look at verses um, 16 and 17, Paul is speaking to Philemon and he says, If he, Onesimus, has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. So what he's saying is, look, I, I know this guy, I know he owes you a debt. I know he has wronged you and stolen from you. Um, I want you to give me his bill, okay? So what that tells us, though, about Onesimus is that Onesimus had access to the family wealth. It means that he was trusted. It means that he was brought into the inner circle and had access to areas of trust in the family, and he betrayed that trust, we know from the description of Philemon that he was a naturally gracious and generous man, that, that he was supernaturally even more so, that, that after he became a believer, he was known for his love for people, his faith in God and his love for people, and, and that had to spill out into the way that he operated in his home and, and led um, economically and, and, and personally in his home. And, and so Onesimus took advantage of um, of that trust. And he stole enough to get all the way to Rome. <laughs> okay, Rome was a thousand miles away from Colossae. And Onesimus had to walk, right? So, so he needed a little bit of money to take him on the way. That's like walking from here to Phoenix, okay? Or walking from here to Miami, or walking here from Boston. I don't know which direction you'd want to go if you were fighting for freedom, but, but whatever way you want to go, that's where you got to get Okay, so he walks all the way to Rome. So apparently, he, he, he had a sizable chunk of cash because he had to pay for transportation, he had to pay for food, he had to pay for lodging, um, he had to, you know, in order to travel inconspicuously. Um, but he made it. He made it, like all the way to Rome. And what, the, what a perfect place for an escaped slave to land. Rome was the marketplace of the world. You would walk through the streets of Rome, and, and there'd be conversations all around you in different languages. People dressed in, in all their different cultural clothing. Everybody coming together for the purpose of commerce and, and culture. It was chaotic. It was busy. It was the perfect place to disappear. And all he had to do was jump on a caravan or jump on a ship, give himself a new name, and he had a new start. He could completely disappear and start over. That was his plan. But God had a different plan for him. Um, and I really, really, really wish um, God had seen fit to write this part of the story down. We don't have it. What we do know is somehow in the middle of this chaotic, crazy city, Onesimus ran into Paul. Paul, who had limited movement, um, limited resources, dependent. We don't know what happened, but we know somehow they developed a relationship, and we know somehow they actually became friends, and that Paul shared the gospel with Onesimus, and that Onesimus became a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, more than likely, Onesimus's heart had been softened over the previous years of, of serving at Philemon's house and hearing the gospel, but maybe he had already had his mind so set on escape and freedom that it never sank in until he actually walked into the presence of Paul, and Paul unpacked it, and he became a believer. But whatever happened, he became a close friend a a companion and a support to Paul in his imprisonment, an eager disciple that was learning and growing in his relationship with Christ. So God had other plans for him. Now we can see a little bit about of of Paul's affection for him, this relationship in verses um, 10 through 14. Take a look. Paul again speaking to Philemon, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. He's talking about sharing the gospel with Onesimus and Onesimus becoming a believer. uh, Paul feels as a spiritual father would to him. Formerly, he was useless to you as a slave, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me as a believer. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. So what we see here is, is clearly Paul had developed a deep kinship, friendship, and affection for Philemon, who was probably quite a bit younger, possibly Archippus's age, um, and, 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 and eager, right? Um, So we see two things coming out of this that are actually quite remarkable. First, Paul sends him back. (laughs) Paul sends him back into this mess. Okay, just escaped slaves generally didn't look forward to warm homecomings. You know what I'm saying? Like the consequences for running away were severe, and Paul sent him back with a letter right? I would have loved to have been there that day. Knock, knock, knock. Oh, hey, read this first, please. You know, like um, that had to be kind of a jarring moment when Onesimus showed up on the doorstep and, and introduced himself like, I'm home, right? Uh, but read the letter first. And, and so Phil- Paul had enough trust in the power of the gospel to protect this young boy that he loved. He sent him back. The other thing that's actually amazing is Onesimus went, like, Onesimus chose to go back. He, he had been planning and working and, and conniving to get away. He had this plan laid out. And here he goes of his own free will. He's not under guard. You know, he was traveling with a few other guys, but they weren't there to guard him or to force him. He was going back of his own free will because after he had tasted the forgiveness of Christ, he felt compelled to go back and confess to those that he had wronged and to seek reconciliation with those that he had stolen from. So, you guys, think about the incredible mess this makes. (laughs) The layers upon layers of jacked-up relationships that are happening in this home as Onesimus shows up with this letter, right? Um, When he shows up, everyone obviously knew him to be a slave, and we don't know what his demeanor was like before he left, but, but because he continued to have quite a bit of access to the family wealth it was it was probably true that he was conniving that he he kind of put on a face so before he left, he was probably seen as helpful and and, and probably a, a guy that, that that they enjoyed having around or whatever um, but obviously he showed his true colors when he when he stole and, and fled right and so when he's coming back he 's coming back in dishonor he 's coming back as somebody who um, had um, broken not only the social structure but had done it in a dishonor and a dishonest and, and dishonorable way. Uh, think about how that would affected everybody, like Philemon. Philemon is the one who took the brunt of this dishonesty and disrespect. He's the one that bore the brunt of the financial cost. Um, he's the one that's going to bear the brunt of the social ramifications of what Philemon, of what Onesimus did. Think about this, you guys. In that culture, things weren't private, right? We really prize our privacy in the West. What, what happens, you know, like you can live in a cul-de-sac and, and you probably don't know a whole lot. Maybe their names, but you don't know a whole lot about the people's lives around you because that's the way we are culturally. We pull in, we protect... Um, that's pretty unique, and it's different than most of the world's cultures. During this period of time, your life was very public. People were invited in. Your home was the marketplace, and, and, and things were, were very public. Um, in fact, when I was in Kyrgyzstan, which is a, a Middle Eastern country, um, visiting a, a um, church planning team there, they had a word that, I, that fascinated me. The word was "tonish," and "tonish" was a word that described the social capital of respect. So in other words, the more respect you had in the community, the more taunish you had. The more taunish you had, the more business you could get. The more people would want to deal with you. The better deals you could get when you were dealing with people. Um, If you needed to borrow something, if you had a high level of taunish, people were more inclined to lend it to you. If you had a low level, they were more inclined to not lend you things, to give you less social respect, to make dealing, financial deals harder. Things might cost you more money right? Because in that culture, your respect is part of your currency, right? It's not just how much money you have, it's how much respect you've earned in the community. Onesimus has cost Philemon a significant amount of tarnish because in that culture, he trusted somebody who wasn't trustworthy. He empowered somebody he shouldn't have empowered, and now he's receiving back a dishonored slave, and there are cultural ways to deal with that. There are things that people in the culture are expecting him to do to protect and keep together the cultural framework. Even the slaves expect him to do it. And he's being called upon not to. He's going to pay a significant price, right? So it's messy with Philemon. Think about Apphia, his wife. I, we don't get a lot of glimpse into their home, but I know how it is with my wife and I. And, and, and when we let people into our inner circle, when we let people in um, that know us um, and then they betray us, she absorbs that. It breaks her heart. And especially if somebody betrays you, like in this case, where you know they didn't have money just sitting around in, in piles of, of cash. They generally had prized possessions. They had things like that. And we don't know what he stole, but it's very possible that he stole something of great value, not just monetarily, but personally that he told an artifact from the home or something that was of great personal family significance, something he could sell that would give him enough money to actually make it all the way to, to Rome. She would have absorbed that betrayal and now is being asked to invite this guy back into this circle. There's going to be trust issues, not just between her and Onesimus, but between her and Philemon, Right? I mean, this, this gets complicated, right? And then you think about Archippus, who was probably around the same age as Onesimus, right? And, 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 and when he gets invited, and we don't know, those guys might've grown up together, right? And the betrayal of friendship and, and the layers of, of difficulty in trusting somebody that you thought was, was trustworthy. And then he's being received back, potentially even with honor and the potential for rivalry and jealousy of mistrust. And then you get into the church, the church who gathers in that home, who knew Onesimus, who rubbed shoulders with Onesimus, who were served by Onesimus, who gave honor to Onesimus, and he's coming back into this mix, now dishonoring the group that, that had probably honored him from, all, uh, from, from everything we can get from this. And, 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 and they're going to naturally, in their hearts, side with Philemon. They're going to naturally say, man, this guy treated you well. You took advantage of him. This guy set you up for, for success, and you just, you just ran right over him, right? So even if they're like, oh yeah, we forgive you, the, the potential for resentment, you know what I'm saying? Like that lingering sense of anger and, and man, that's just not right. That's not just to give this, bring this guy back and just let him off the hook. Think about the other slaves, the ones that had obeyed all the rules and done all the right things. And this guy comes back and, and now he's like, he's the one that dishonored the entire thing. He broke all the rules. And they're like, yeah, let's forgive him. What would that do to your heart when you're the one who had kept all the rules and done all the right things? Do you see how messy this is? Do you see how there are layers and layers of relational difficulty going on here? And then there's Onesimus. Onesimus, the one who has no rights and is walking into the situation with no legitimate legal hope. (laughs) He's in a bad spot and he knows what um, is due him. This whole situation is a real mess. And this is where I think this letter speaks powerfully to us. I don't think we got a whole lot of runaway slaves in here. Um, not a whole lot of slave owners, okay? Now, obviously, we can apply it to, to employment and, and um, employers and, and all that sort of stuff, but that, that, that's not what interests me. That's not where I want to go with this. What I want to look at is, is really how does the grace of God empower us to navigate relationships we have no idea how to navigate outside of that? How does the grace of God enable us to deal with resentment? But it's legitimate resentment (laughs) when we've been legitimately wronged. How does the grace of God empower us to forgive when the cost is significant and ongoing? Like it wasn't just this thing, like like Philemon is not just going to pay that price once, he's going to keep paying that price every time he goes out in public, right? Right? How does the grace of God meet us in the complexity of of our work and our family, of our extended family, of, of our neighbors and our community, where real people live and real difficult situations are? Here's the thing. Our faith in Christ is not compartmentalized. Grace isn't one room in the house of my life and I keep it nice and caged up. I think a lot of people try to approach it that way. Um, you know, I got my work life, I got my family life, I got my church thing going on. Right? I've heard people talk about it like that. Like, yeah, I go to church on Sunday to get my tank filled, you know, and then I got to just plow through the week, and I got to get back to church, to get my tank filled again. It's like you're stepping into the room of grace, taking a deep breath, holding it, and running through all these other rooms where there's no grace. Right? That's not the way life was designed to be. That's that is not biblical Christianity. Grace is not a single room filled with this wonderful air. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the windows of your life are all thrown open, and it blows through every area of your life, right? God does not claim dominion over your Sundays. He claims dominion over everything you are, everything you do. And He will bring the power of grace to bear on every, uh, all your emotions, all your relationships, um, how you handle your money, everything, right? Because there's nothing that's not spiritual, right? We don't have a secular and spiritual life. It's all spiritual. Who we are are spiritual beings created in the image of God designed to walk um, in a way that glorifies God and fills us with joy. And so grace is designed to not just get us into heaven, but impact the way we live on earth, right? We don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can just get to the glorious by and by. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because grace impacts the gritty here and now. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we operate. And this letter contains powerful insights into how grace frees us in beautiful ways. Right? Paul is while 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 he's he's being gentle in this letter. He's not being passive. <laughs> he's very assertive, and he's bringing the principles of the gospel to bear on the situation. And I'm really looking forward to unpacking these things um, because I think you're going to have uh, a lot of meaning. For us, as we seek to forgive and be forgiven, to reconcile, to to grow. Um, but for this morning, as we wrap up, this is what I want to look at. How does Paul approach Philemon to tell him to walk in grace? Because that's how Paul's approaching us too. How does Paul approach Philemon to tell him, "Hey, man, this is how you need to to operate with Onesimus, right?" Here's the thing we, we know that Paul has positional authority. He's an apostle. That's kind of a big deal. You know what I'm saying? Like like an apostle is actually, you know, th- this guy was given like this this unique indwelling by the spirit of God. Um he could touch people and they'd be made well. Right? Um he could he could like like there's crazy stories in the book of Acts like he would drop a handkerchief and people would be like, "Yes, and grab it. No, I'm I'm well." You know, like like the kind of crazy stuff that that you know, we read about um, during this period of time, he was given this indwelling power of the Spirit and this special presence of the Spirit because the miracles authenticated the message. You know what I'm saying? Like he was given a special authority, deliver the gospel, this great news of who Jesus is and what he's done, and I'm going to empower you with the Spirit of God so that that the, the works you do will reinforce the message you give, right? And so he had a tremendous amount of authority and people respected him. And if he showed up with that authority and said, hey, guys, this is how you need to handle it, they'd be like, okay, right? You didn't argue with Paul, right? This guy was a heavyweight, and he could have shown up and spoken from um, positional authority. He could have shown up and commanded. Um, But if he had done that, he would have been operating from a culture of law. And he is determined to operate from a culture of grace. What do I mean by culture of law? Um, Very simply, this. Um, A culture of law says here are the expectations, obey. Here are the expectations, go do. Here are the expectations, now perform through means of obedience. And you can get obedience, right? You can get obedience. And when people obey, uh, they feel good about themselves. They feel entitled to things. And when they don't obey, they feel shame because they didn't measure up. We operate, this is our default mode, you guys, in, in separated from God, we operate according to the culture of law. And, and, and I know this, there, there have ever been times where you've kind of come to God and you're like, man, I've done all the right things. Why am I not getting what I want? Right? I've done all my, my devotions. I've been reading my Bible, but I'm not getting what I want right? Don't, don't I deserve something? That's kinda, we don't usually come out and say it that brashly, but, but that's the hard intent. Like sometimes we get mad at God because we feel like he's not paying us off. Like he owes us something, but that's law. Law says, I obey and perform, therefore you owe me. If he had come in um, to this situation and said to Philemon, do it, man, this is the law. This is what I'm telling you you have to do. Philemon would have done it, but it wouldn't have changed his heart. It would have only changed his behavior, Right? He would have complied, but he wouldn't have experienced the transforming power of grace because law doesn't change character. It only changes behavior, right? It's like the story of of the the dude and... and there was a guy at my old church who said it was actually his kid. I, I don't know. I think maybe he just read it somewhere and claimed it. But, but he was like, you know, uh, singing in church, and everybody's standing up, and his sit's sitting there all rebellious and angry, and the dad's getting embarrassed and, and you know, feels like people look. And so he's finally like, just stand up, man. Just... So the kid stands up and looks at him and says, oh, I'm still sitting on the inside, right? That's what the law does. Law produces compliance, but it can't change the heart, right? So we obey to either get a reward or avoid a penalty. Right? And when we obey, we feel pridefully like we're owed something. And when we fail, we feel shame and we tend to pull back and hide. Um, that's what the culture of law does. Right? And in the culture of law, the economy that drives this culture is scarcity. What that means is, is there's a limited amount of blessing and I need to fight for mine. Right? And, and we see this like in the workplace. I mean, this is, Doesn't that describe your job? If you perform well, you get paid well. Right, and so the more you perform, the more you get paid, and that's why you need to do better than the people around you. It is a competitive environment in which your performance determines your economic worth. But we also play that out in our relationships. Right, you love me because I am this way, so I become more this way to make you love me more. Right, I, you love what is lovable, I love what is lovable, and so I seek to ultimately become what you love, and you try to become what. And, and when, when we fail right? And if we fail long enough, we call that falling out of love, right? You, you're no longer provoking a response. Um, it, it is a very much a, a, a performance-based mentality. And, um, and it leads to, of course, um, the roller coaster of pride and shame, of success and failure. Um, and, and, um, and it ultimately can't change your heart. It can only modify your behavior, Um, The difference is is that Paul doesn't show up with commands, right? He's he's saying, look, I'm not going to come in this culture of law. I'm going to come in a culture of grace. I'm going to come in the power of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he did, his love for you. And I'm just going to trust the gospel to lead you to do what you're supposed to do, right? Paul risks everything on the power of the gospel, He sends Onesimus, his heart, that's what he says, his heart, the one that he loves, back into this toxic, potentially toxic situation, incredibly dangerous. And the only protection he gives Onesimus is a covering of grace. But he is so convinced in the power of grace that he sits back and lets it happen. Paul doesn't put on the powerful cloak of the apostle. He wears the humble cloak of a fellow recipient of grace and then appeals to grace. When Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, as I mentioned earlier, he did that, obviously, to secure our forgiveness, right? He did it as my substitute. It's very personal. But he did it also for all of humanity to reset the clock and basically say there's a new humanity, there's a new kingdom breaking in in which God's glory is the center and you can revolve around that glory and live in his goodness, right? So when when he did that, um, he established a new culture and it's no longer a culture of law, it's a culture of grace. And we talk about the kingdom of God, um, we're talking about a a culture of grace. Go ahead and change the slide, there we go. Um, In the culture of grace the economic or the driving engine isn't law and performance. It's grace and love, right? And what ends up happening is this, you guys. Grace produces gratitude. Gratitude moves generosity. Generosity gives a deeper experience of grace. Think about it in your own life. Have you ever gotten an unexpected compliment from somebody you didn't expect it from? How does your heart respond? I'm guessing even if it came from someone you don't like, it responded warmly. You know what I'm saying? Like you're merging on the highway, you're grummy, you're, you're mad, and everyone's like all packed together, and then somebody purposely slows down to allow you to come in, and you're like, oh, really? I don't have to fight for that today. Thank you, right? There's just this like, all right, there is a nice person in the world, I, I, and your heart warms it. You don't even know who they are, right? That coworker that annoys you all the time, but he covers for you when you made a mistake, and you find out he's the one that did it for you, you're like, oh, man. I don't even like that guy. And right now I'm kind of liking him, right? It's a response. That's what I'm saying. You can't control it. When you receive grace, you respond with gratitude. You do. Because when someone gives you unexpected, undeserved love, your heart comes to life. And when your heart comes to life, it warms you with this sense of, man, I didn't deserve that, but I got it. And there's no greater display of grace in the world than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When God, the Holy One, um, stepped out of glory, put on the, the clothing of humanity, lived the life we should have lived, and died the death we deserve to die, the Holy One of God becoming sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When we really start getting a glimpse of that grace, of that kind of love, it triggers our hearts to gratitude. Um, Some of the most authentic prayers I have heard people say are when they can utter nothing else than thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Because we're undone by grace, right? We realize in that moment, I don't have to perform. I don't have to produce. I don't have to work. It's been given to me as a free gift. God's love is mine in Christ, and it frees my heart to gratitude. And when your heart is freed to gratitude, you will naturally flow... um, in generosity to others, you will freely give. You know why? Because love gives, right? When you, when you read through the New Testament, you see this phrase a lot For God so loved the world that He gave. That combination of love and giving is intimately wed in the New Testament because God's character is I love, so I give. When we experience love, it awakens gratitude. And as it awakens gratitude, it frees us to stop operating according to an economy of, of scarcity. We have to protect our resources, protect our emotions, protect our money, protect our time, protect my reputation, protect, and we start giving. Why? Because we have an unlimited supply of love being given to us. When when the kingdom of God is pouring its glory on me, I don't have to fight for my own glory. When the kingdom of God is pouring God's goodness on me, I don't have to fight for my own good. I become free in giving what I am freely receiving. And so you have an economy of generosity instead of an economy of scarcity. And this impacts obviously people's finances, but way more than that, it impacts the way we relate to one another and the way we see people. And so what Paul is saying in in, in approaching them in grace is look, man. There's a culture of grace that as you operate in it will not only bless Onesimus, it'll bless you. Because as you move out in response to grace, to gratitude, and from gratitude to generosity, you will experience more grace. Grace always finds its greatest power in movement. It was never designed to be held as a private stash. It was never designed to be this private little treasure that I hold for myself. It was God's grace for me, and I'm just going to. It was designed to be given away. And in fact, that's where it finds its power. It finds its power in being channeled through our hearts to others. Right? That's where Jesus said, You need to forgive others as you've been forgiven. If you take that as a command, that is an overwhelming weight. Have you ever just tried to forgive everybody like Jesus forgave you? How are you doing with that? Oh, yeah, I'm just like God. Totally. Forgive people, completely release them and freely, no, it's a crushing weight if you take it as a command, but it's beautiful if you take it as an invitation. And what he's saying is, is look, you've tasted deeply of my grace. You've tasted deeply of my forgiveness. Now let that have its proper working in your heart and learn how to give it away. Learn how to give people what I've given you. And as you do, you'll taste more of what I've given you and you'll be free to give more of it away. That's the power and the beauty of a culture of grace, right? It's an invitation to taste, not only to taste and consume, but to taste and give the love of God. So what Paul wants to do is he wants to unleash the power of grace in this situation. We have a, a horrible situation that could be incredibly toxic, and he's dropping a little grace bomb right in the middle. And he's like, let's see what happens. I love everybody involved, and I trust grace, and so that's where we're going to go. We're going to take a look at this and unpack it. Here's the thing, man. Grace has the, ba- the power to rewire people from the inside out. It doesn't just modify our behavior. It changes our hearts. And when it changes our hearts, it changes our behavior, and it changes the way we relate and value, relate to and value other people. And, in fact, it changes cultures and societies. Um, I can make an argument, and it would, that uh, it's because of grace that we have seen the eradication of slavery in most of the countries of the world it completely undermined the social and economic structure in which slavery was possible. When you get a guy back and he's your brother in Christ, it's really hard to own him, right? Um, so here's the thing. We're going to unpack this and see how it plays out in our lives in uh, in coming weeks. For now, I'm going to wrap us up. Um, I'm going to put some reflection questions on the screen to help us just pray and do some business with God. Um, there are worship response cards in your bulletin. We would love for you to fill those out. Let us know you were here. If you have prayer requests or comments or questions, let us know. Drop those in the boxes um, by the door or up front. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and if you are a first-time guest, we do have a gift for you at Connection Point right out in the, in the lobby. Um, so feel free, please, to stop by out there. All right, so some questions for you to consider as we're moving into a time of response. First of all, have you tasted deeply of grace? And I mean deeply. The more deeply you taste of grace, the more deeply you'll be changed. Often the reason we struggle with spiritual passion, with joy, with focus in our spiritual life is because we're simply not drinking from the well of grace. We believed in Jesus, but we've stopped leading our heart back to Jesus to be reawoken in wonder, reawoken at the beauty of who he is and what he's done. Right, we need to have regular patterns of awakening our hearts to the beauty of grace. Right, because we grow cold, we forget. So, how are you doing? Right, have you tasted deeply of grace? Do you fill your vision with the beauty of who God is and what He's done for you? And how can it free your heart to gratitude? Where are you right now struggling to have a self? You're struggling with self-protection, an economy of scarcity, where you're just trying to protect your resources of time. Of money, uh, of relational um, margin? Where are you pulling back instead of giving? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have healthy boundaries. and uh, don't, don't take it there. But I am saying that more than likely, there are places where God wants you to move out in grace, and you're reluctant to do it. Right? Where are, Let's just begin by identifying. Where are those places? All right, third question is this. Who is God asking you to show generosity to? It always has a face. Who are you having a difficult time moving in generosity toward? Let's start by identifying it. It's probably a face, a name, somebody you're having a hard time forgiving, somebody you're having a hard time um, just giving the credit of human life to, right? Um, you, you just don't like them. Um, maybe they've hurt you. Maybe they've wronged you. Maybe they've, they've um, robbed you of some experience of joy. Maybe they just annoy the snot out of you. I don't know. But who is God asking you to show generosity to? Let's begin there and start asking this question how can grace free me to gratitude? And how can that gratitude free me to generosity? Knowing that I am enriched as I give it away, right? I am enriched in the experience of grace as I give it away, and my heart shrinks as I refuse to do it. So let's start there. Let's just start praying. All right, Lord, who do you want me to show generosity to? The generosity of love, the generosity of forgiveness, the generosity of just giving credit where it's not due right? And then how can your work for me free me to start moving in that way? Those are the questions we're going to keep digging into in the coming weeks, but I'm going to create some space right now for you to start praying. I want God work on your heart a little bit. Let's pray. We'll share communion in a moment. Um, We'll have somebody introduce that in a moment. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. You are a God of righteousness and justice. Um, You are a God who judges sin. Man, I am so, so thankful that you judge that sin In Jesus instead of me. You paid a price I couldn't pay. Um, You suffered in ways I can't even understand so that my debt could be paid, my sins could be forgiven, my pride, my offense, um, my lying about you. Man, wiped clean. Thank you for paying that price. Thank you for loving me enough I pray for me and I pray for my friends, Lord. It is so easy for us. We are weak, we are frail, we are made of dust, and it is so easy for us to just get overwhelmed and start shutting down, to start going through the motions, being religious. I pray this morning you'll reawaken our hearts to the beauty of grace, that we will taste again the wonder of being loved by the sovereign God of the universe who loves us and has paid the price to forgive us. And you have called us to your kingdom to live in the outpouring of your goodness. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to see every time we close our hearts to grace, we're just closing our hearts to your blessing. Every time we close our hearts to giving grace, we're just closing ourselves off, making our world smaller. Help us to see and to crave what is good and real and lasting and beautiful. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.